Hi, and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And this is a podcast that's a partnership between Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work. Before we get to today's guest, we want to point you to an episode that we did on Syria. It's with Stephen Hickey, who served in Syria as the Deputy British Ambassador from 2010 until he was expelled from the country in 2012. Even though we only talked to him back in April, it's an episode that sadly is still interesting and relevant today, particularly if you're trying to understand the events unfolding in Syria right now. This is a conversation that got at the roots of the crisis and helps you understand how we got to where we are in Syria. Um, It's crucial listening to understanding both the arc of the crisis as well as what's to come. So on Displays today, we went to Oxford. We met an amazing guy called Stefan Durkon, who is a professor of economics there and is the former chief economist at the UK aid ministry, DFID, the Department for International Development, where he played a critical role providing strategic and technical guidance. And he was a, an economist there, but he was also somebody who was heavily involved in the political discussions about how to shape aid. And he's somebody who's been an incredible policymaker, but also somebody who's an outstanding academic and has done a series of groundbreaking studies in how to reduce extreme poverty and deliver aid. More recently, Stefan's been doing a lot of thinking on how we finance the way we respond to humanitarian crises. And we spend the good half of this conversation talking to him about how insurance instruments can be used to cover humanitarian crises. This sounds wonky, and that's because it is. But it's also really important and has life-saving potential. And that's because the current way we fund humanitarian crises is broken. When a crisis happens, the vast majority of funding takes months to mobilize. And even then, it's uncertain whether it'll actually be allocated. To get concrete, if violence breaks out in a place like Burundi, driving hundreds of thousands of refugees across the border into the Democratic Republic of Congo or Tanzania, it may take months, if not longer, for the international community to come together and decide whether they respond to that crisis, decide how much money they want to allocate to that response, drop tenders for implementing agencies to bid on so that they can provide services to those refugees, open the tender process up, review bids, sign contracts, disperse funding. It all takes an intense amount of time. And this is right as refugees are displaced where they're in drastic need of aid. It's kind of like if a fire catches on a house and then all the firemen get together to fundraise to put out that fire instead of responding. It's wild. Insurance instruments have the power to totally change that model. If you think about when you get sick and if you've got health insurance, you know you are covered. You pay a premium up front, but if you get sick, insurance is there. Imagine if you did the same for refugee flows. So, for instance, if more than 100,000 refugees flow over a border... An organisation like IRC or a government could get paid because that event had occurred. That money could then be transferred to the people on the ground immediately rather than spending weeks and months um, trying to get donations. So on Displaced, we have got Stefan Durkon. excited to have you on Displaced today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's very nice to be here. So after many years as a research economist and an academic, you became the chief economist for DFID. DFID is, of course, the foreign aid branch of the UK government, dispersing roughly $14 billion a year now. And as such, it's one of the largest donors. And and DFID really has a unique role in driving the intellectual agenda in international development. 
What were the things that surprised you that you did not expect um, in becoming chief economist? There were a few things that I definitely noticed to start with, and one maybe is a slightly flippant one, is that I think that universities are more bureaucratic than governments. But um, once then got into, uh, you know, a government department is that in the end, the strength of a place like Diffit is its people. And um, to step into a government department that is consisting of people and a leadership that is as mission-driven is still a surprise to me now. And that's actually one of the key strengths of an organization like that, is that, you know, it has a clear mission. Um, of course, it is implementing government policy, but it's still a remarkable thing in the UK that you have, by law, a government department that um, has a real purpose in terms of trying to improve the welfare of people outside your own country. I think that's still a surprise and for me now that you're coming to a group there that actually is totally committed to it. All, all of your nihilist academic colleagues are going to be upset when they listen to this. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I definitely now read some of these papers that correlate uh, political preferences with, uh, with development sometimes slightly differently. Um, but it's, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the strength of them, than the people that... Um, and it consists of a lot of people. You know, they are civil servants. They are choosing not to high to earn much high incomes in lots of other organisations, whether it's international organisations or uh, or in private sector in, in the country. And so, it's the capabilities of these people that still surprises me uh, in a, in a very positive way. So, when you were chief economist, um, you did it in a particular way. And I've seen various chief economists sometimes be quite. Um, purist and slightly irrelevant, if I may say so, and, and slightly marginalised by the whole political process. You were very politically savvy and you actually had a pretty influential role on a lot of key policy developments, didn't you? Well, I don't think you, you, you start off in a role uh, like that that is, to be honest, relatively undefined. It's, it's, a, it's a role, you have a, a few statutory functions within the organization, but otherwise a free role. So you don't start it with some kind of, uh, you know, really deep political agenda or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, different people fillet it in different ways. Um, you know, I definitely enjoyed engaging across the department, talking to a lot of people. And I did see myself as, you know, the lucky boy that is an academic that can see it on the ground, can talk to a huge amount of people across different disciplines and talk to them. If that in the end meant there is influence, so then, then it's good. So maybe once in a while I said something encouraging or make them think or, or, or make them work. But it's not in terms of you plotting away an influencing strategy that you kind of try to, to, uh, to um, implement. I mean, I think the, still the thing is that is, in the end, you know, um, a, a government department like that, that is that it does not, it does not consist of policymakers. You know, these are still policies made by ministers. So if I could have a particular role is that I could provide maybe either some counterweight or some complementarity to some of the, 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 the things, the directions we're giving, or indeed offer some content and maybe nudge, nudge people away from certain things and, and some other things. Look, it's another part of it. If you do a job like that, if you don't enjoy it, you can't, you can't, you can't have any influence. How did being on the inside make you think about economics differently? What did you change your mind about development? Well, 
I suppose what I definitely learned is that once you're on the practitioner side and once you work within a government and you work with other governments, is that we cannot be technocrats that try to describe the first best in economics. We can't just think in this kind of very naive way as if our advice can be neutral. There is no such a thing as neutral advice. It will be absorbed in a political economy. It will be used within it and so on. So if we don't understand politics, and I don't mean necessarily that we have to be able to write public choice models or whatever, but simply that we are, that we recognize that we are part of politics as well. You know, and, and if you are a technocrat, say, from an international organization and you behave, you know, during the day that uh, you can describe beautifully this first best policies that they should be doing. And then at night, as you do, as we all over beer and pizza talk politics, you know, say, no, 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 actually have that part of it as part of your, of, of, of your thinking about it, understand a bit better what it is. And, 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 you know, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to describe or analyze or say, do experiment about what is possible. But is this kind of you know, making sure that we don't have this, that don't behave as if we're isolated from politics. That's probably broader. Let's not behave as if we're isolated from the rest of society, that we are isolated from all the other uh, research communities. We are brilliant as economists at inventing the wheel again, and every day it is invented again as if nobody's ever looked at this kind of problem. Yes, we have a way of talking about it, but that's that's something definitely I look a bit differently. I'm a bit more tolerant, I suppose, towards other researchers in general. So uh, we're going to pivot into the very exciting topic of insurance shortly. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you, after these years kind of thinking very carefully about development and aid, working both on the research side and then kind of in the institutional side, what do you think the most compelling counter argument to foreign aid is? You know, there is something fundamentally problematic about, about aid per se in, the, in a very simple sense that you can be really effective as aid if you can work with a counterpart. You know, this is a, we, UK is as a government working with, say, a particular country that has a, a reasonably and you know, a good, let's call it good without wanting to define now, a good vision of, of development that is, that is considered, you know, a, a, a good direction, a good, good uh, trajectory of development, a big vision. You know, the, it's quite straightforward to actually complement this with extra resources and making, trying to make that vision to be realized more quickly. The problem is, and that's the argument of it, is that increasingly, and I think increasingly the argument becomes more difficult, is that the countries where we still have large-scale extreme poverty, where we have had very much jobless growth creation, uh, jobless growth uh, processes, where we have some of the, the worst issues of conflict and tensions and, and fragility and the poorest governance are now, uh, are, are now the same type of places. You know, basically, increasingly poverty is concentrated in rather messy places. Not all of them are poorly government, governed, but quite a few are. So the case against aid is, is that, you know, are you allowing this 
to, are, are you feeding, basically giving incentives for this to continue, make it easier? And in a very simple sense, a country is, has, is not growing its economy. There's another way of getting some resources in your economy. Why should you bother growing your economy? And we'll just do distributive of the, distributing the rents amongst uh, an elite and whatever. So that's the big argument. And that always means if you are involved in aid, you have to think really very carefully. You have to think of the politics, the political incentives, and you have to be so committed to trying to make sure the return is really high because your your first impact is negative and then you have to turn it around. So just anyone who just says, oh, it's all just about the giving. No, it isn't. It's the how and what is crucial because you need to turn these incentives around. And this is also why the what is not enough. You know, spending in a terribly terrible country that can't be bothered raising its own taxes from its elite or indeed not spending on any of it on health. And let me not name that country that I just have in mind now. Um, I was just going to say, can you, have you ever been through this analysis and said, let's not do this because it's on balance going to create more negative effects than positive? Uh, we definitely have said, let's not do this particular way of working with them. And that's definitely the case. And it's a very important part of when people try to, in the organization, thinking of how do we engage with country X? You know, we mentioned earlier, you know, uh, we mentioned budget support. Now, one of the reasons why we ended up as DFID moving more and more out of it. And of course, in, then in the end, the Conservative Party, when they uh, went into a medical, uh, with a manifesto, said we wouldn't do budget support anymore, which is a political choice. But, you know, for most of us, for quite a few of these countries involved, that makes a lot of sense not to do it. And that's exactly for this reason. So, yes, we don't do certain things. But you think of it, you know, the dynamics, you know, you, you're sitting there also in, in, in working some of these places. At the same time, that we also have to think all the time about the cost of non-engagement. You know, and there's another country I have in mind that at the moment goes through a big macroeconomic adjustment that somehow had its... Uh, Who are these fantasy countries? Come on, name some names. <laughs> no, but come on, you know, <laughs> we know some of the big countries in Africa, whether it's the Nigerias or the Sudans, where actually fundamentally the way you can work in these places is fundamentally problematic. And you have to really thinking, and if you don't do this with a deep political economy lens, around am I actually making it easier for uh, very little money to be spent on healthy Nigeria? Area, or am I making it easier in Sudan for a government to, to allow to have impunity? But you think of what the counterfactual is. If I don't do anything, you know, there is still an appeal then, given historical links and other links and globally, that these are countries with huge humanitarian burdens as well. And so then you start thinking, is it then better to engage uh, doing certain things, finding a way of doing it. I don't think the counterfactual of, oh, let's withdraw entirely, as, you know, some of my colleagues like Bill, uh, Bill Easterly and co. would just argue to do it. I don't think that's necessarily the outcome. But you better think very, very carefully about how you then do this. And we make errors, no doubt. And it's not as if one way of doing it is the way, the way to do it. No, it's Think of Sudan. How do you engage? How do you re-engage with a place like this? Knowing the history that non-engagement led, led to massive humanitarian um, disasters, but also huge costs and huge effort having to be made to actually overcome these. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Stefan Durkin in just one second. One of the most important things we do for our health that Grant fails to do every day is brush your teeth. Um, most of us don't do it properly. 
And one way to do it better is to have an electric toothbrush. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers and is designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Also, just so you all know, I actually brush my teeth too much. I brush my teeth so much that I have the gums of a 70-year-old. And the nice thing about Quip, as opposed to the hard toothbrushes that I used as a child, is that First, there's sensitive sonic vibrations, which are gentle enough on your sensitive gums like the ones I have, and for people who brush too hard, to take care of your teeth without applying too much pressure. It's also got a multi-use cover that mounts to your mirror and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. And what I really like is that brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. I love Quip because it is taking me away from the inevitable gum surgery that I once would have to have had without it. I like Quip because uh, Grant's breath smells a bit better. (laughs) That's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25 and if you go to getquip.com slash displaced right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash displaced. So, Stefan, I want to talk to you now about insurance. Now, listeners, please do not switch off. This is going to be the most fascinating bit of this discussion. You have written, Stefan, this book called Dull Disasters. And um, the problematic you set out is this idea that at the moment disasters create a lot of political turmoil, like quite exciting and dramatic. You have a, a big crisis like Ebola or a hurricane strikes. And then there's lots of people in the media saying we need money to be raised, appeals are made, uh, politicians are forced to do something. And then after many, many months, um, commitments are made. After even more months, the money flows. And meanwhile, you've had terrible uh, effects that happen because of that delay. And the best example probably is Ebola, where I think you had uh, 11,000 people ultimately die, $2 billion spent, when actually if it had been um, nipped in the bud, if you like, in 2013, when it first broke out in Guinea, it could have only cost maybe $5 million rather than $2 billion to actually uh, stem the, the outbreak. So you've come up with this idea of thinking about, let's not rely on aid money, which has all of these problems of uh, drama and slowness, and instead think about using the insurance system to deal with things like that. Can you just explain the basic concept? So yes, no, absolutely. And 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 I will, ready to make sure and, and try to avoid people switching this off too quickly, is that it's not necessarily that I want to encourage that everybody should go, go out and just buy insurance, that I tell Ethiopia or, or, or Sierra Leone, just go and buy insurance. The main, the most important part of what we want to talk about is that you, one should think about it as if one is trying to set up an insurance-like system. And so let's let's talk it through. If you take uh, some of the cases you mentioned, you know, where's uh, the Ebola crisis you've mentioned explicitly, we could have in mind uh, an earthquake uh, where uh, huge amounts of money were raised um, by June of the, the earthquake happened in May, I think, 2015. In, by June, 
was lots of money, and cabinet managed to agree of how to spend it by December. Uh, you know, all these kind of delays, and it's not just for droughts and slow onset disasters, it's also for rapid onset disasters. We have these huge inefficiencies. We have failures of decision making. We have failures of actually trying to think about it before uh, in terms of what we're going to do and the squabbles that then have what shall we do with the money and who should we prioritize. And then the financing. And it's it, just think of the way we finance that stuff. So it's typically something happens. And then after a bit of time, yeah, we need help, we need help, and then we'll get all the appeals. We get, you know, the emergency uh, emergency appeals from different NGOs, from organizations, and the UN will be there as well with the big appeal, the big UN appeal the, uh, for, for loads of money. So the way I think about it is this, it is really very strange, you know, there's very, if we crash our car, we don't then simply quickly go and talk to our neighbors and saying, it would be really nice if you all chipped in a little bit and then you call lots of friends and so on. Now, it may happen, but if you think of the efficiency of raising the money to get your car repaired, it is just ridiculous. I mean, it is the begging bowl. It's essentially financing as if we're still in the 11th century, where we are as the as the only financial instrument we have to deal with disasters is, is going around with the begging bowl. We fortunately had some innovation in finance since the 11th century. So that's that's a little bit what we want to appeal to. And it's a very simple principle is that there's a there's a, a whole series of these disasters that we can actually we can we know that they may well happen. We just don't know when and with what intensity where. But we know somehow these are the kind of uh, what um, Donald Rumsfeld famously called the the known unknowns. Uh, you know, these are things we know that they will come. It's just they're unknown when they will hit and so on. And um, and so if you have things like that, um, you can or you should probably start beforehand planning what you will do if a disaster strikes. So it would be so not natural that an uh, Nepalese government had beforehand decided, if we have an earthquake, this is the list of the priority infrastructure that we should prepare first. These are the schools, health facilities, and these are the things that we should be doing. And sort out our politics beforehand. We should have, like in the case of Ebola, a way of quickly responding uh, that actually said, okay, if we have 50 cases, automatically something is going to happen. Now we are already getting there. You know, if you do that, it's a bit like, let's set up a contract where we also organize beforehand the financing. And this is about pre-agreed financing. And this is essentially in a way that, you know, an insurance company that takes on a risk, like a government says, I will help my people. An insurance company takes on a risk, make sure it can fulfill that promise when something strikes. So I want to uh, just landscape this a bit because uh, there's something really profound that's being that's going on here that is really crucial. Currently, the humanitarian system is in an ex post model. So an event happens and then we try to raise funding for it. And what you're fundamentally arguing that kind of insurance or risk financing has the opportunity to do is move that model such that you agree to what you're going to do in case something bad happens. And that's that's like the core argument. There's a great quote by uh, Dr. Gordon Wu, who's got an amazing job title it's called Catastrophist, where he kind of accurately captures it. And he says, you know, the wrong time to kind of figure out how to fight a fire and who's going to pay for it and like how it's going to happen is when the fire actually starts. But that's actually what humanitarian disaster financing looks like right now. And 
it trickles down all the way through the system because these are the financial incentives that actually shape how we're organized. So really concretely, the International Rescue Committee in large part uh, is a part of the system. And what we're set up to do is engage in that. We are set up to be able to then go raise uh, money for grants after an event has happened and then deploy. We're actually not quite in a position where if an emergency happens tomorrow, we've got a huge capacity to deploy um, like you would under kind of a risk financing model. We've built this up a little bit and we have now have a fund to help support do that. But it's it's crucially important to think that if you change these financial incentives, you're also going to change the organizational structure of how humanitarian response happens. Yes. And I totally agree with that. And 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 what's important here is that we do this not so much as some people seem to have said, oh, now we can tap into private money or something like that. Setting up this pre-agreed financing, it's not going to mean that we need less money per se, but we will have efficiencies increases. We can spend it so much better. We can be quicker in responding. We have a better sense of what we will do with it. And then you can actually overcome some of these kind of consequences that Ravi was mentioning earlier in terms of, you know, we are procrastinating, waiting, and then actually responding in ways that is going to be much more. So it's not necessarily that going into insurance market will necessarily raise more money, but we can just use money much more better. And that's where the the, the efficiency savings can come from. This is about ex ante arranging your finance. And it's not necessarily that you need to go to the market and buy insurance. Mm -hmm. There's clearly in government two ways you could do this or in any organization. Either you set some money aside that you basically have a little little money under, under the mattress that if there's a kind of a crisis, that's what you tap into it and you'll get it very quickly. Uh, Or you have a mechanism. uh, So this basically you retain the risk on your balance sheet or you have a mechanism that you say, well, I uh, arrange with, you know, as a government often can do, I arrange with my central bank and I can raise uh, some treasury bills, you know, I can raise some money basically um, and, and, uh, and I'll get some money in that way. In a sense, I'll keep it on my books as a government, okay? The, the real problem is, is that saying, you know, I have these countries that I'm, I'm covered, is that I need to have, keep contingency funds one way or another or I need to have some arrangements that I may not be it may not be certain that it's happened. Let's go back to the Ebola case. You know, I was in DFIT when Ebola was uh, became a big issue for DFIT in Sierra Leone. We became one of the main funders and people on the ground as well. I think about 3,000 uh, British um, civil servants, one way or another, also military people and volunteers were on the ground in the end. You know, think of it. It probably absorbed about 10% of our budget that year. We hadn't yeah. budgeted for that. We hadn't mm-hmm. budgeted for that. Okay, think of it what happened. And that's what I do remember is the scramble for money, which you then need to go and find. Where do I find it? Yes, we had, so to speak, we haven't quite it, but at some point we said we'll have Sierra Leone covered and we'll come and help and so on. And we'll do a big part. You need to find that money. You get on the whole, think of what happened to all of the other budgets. Suddenly, you know, the things I was, uh, I I like, you know, the kind of transformational long-term things that say, oh yeah, but this year we can't spend on it. And suddenly budget had to be found. Education budget uh, gets splashed. Mm -hmm. Other budgets get slashed. All kinds of commitments you do. That's what would happen in government. If you retain it on your books, and if you have then a big sum needed, it scales. 
if you retain it, and it's a modest sum, you can only respond as far as something. And I'm always in favor of having a little bit of a cash layer that can do it. But just be aware of it. Another thing, you have a 12-year planning cycle, uh, sorry, 12-month planning cycle, uh, so one year. You know, what do you do three months before the end of your fiscal year? You lose that money uh, if you don't spend it. Should I keep it because the disaster may still strike? It's really hard for any organization in the world to manage contingency funds and to quickly rearrange their budgets. That's what we see all over. That's when the kind of, rather than retaining the risk on your books, which makes sense, is to actually say, well, maybe for efficiency purposes and for discipline purposes, let's actually transfer the risk out. Mm -hmm. This may be a moment where I said, look, actually, maybe buy an insurance policy. And so then it would mean, yes, you pay something for it, but you pay the gain is, is efficiency. The gain is actually that you can fulfill your contract and you don't have to go and scramble, that you are create credibility and that you then can actually spend it. And I think there will be circumstances to do this. It's an interesting thing as a 0.7 donor, as different. With a fixed budget, we can't then even move up and down our budget. The treasury can't give us more or less. Obviously, for a deficit point of view, it would be a very optimal thing that every year you say put 100 million into that. Yes, there will be noises because some years you will spend less than, we draw less than 100 million. But if we need that billion, it would be there straight away and a huge efficiency gain. And, and just to explain there, so uh, DFID and the UK have committed to spending 0.7% of the gross national income on uh, development aid. And so that is the number that gets spent every year. There's not flexing up and flexing down, which is why this is important. On the, I th- one, one important point to make on, I think, the Ebola example and this more broadly is that this is not a silver bullet. Right. There's a lot of factors that would shape the arc of how something like Ebola happens. And when you talk about thinking about the way that financing could have shaped this, you know, you'll get arguments that there wasn't the organizational capacity, there weren't the right people in place, there weren't the right health systems. All of those are completely valid. What this is doing is it's fixing the financing part of it which shapes a lot of those other parts. And so it's not a panacea, but it's a radical proposition in how it actually fundamentally shifts the incentives of response and how it's happening. I agree with that entirely. But also think of it, this is the parallel of how, you know, an insurance company or, or even a firm needs to protect its balance sheet. You start beforehand. If, you, if, you, if I want to go even to an insurance company and I want to actually cover my loss, I have to actually suddenly make it, start actually trying to think about what is that loss? What is that contingent liability exactly that I take on? What would I need to respond to a drought that is, you know, uh, resulting from, I don't know, 20% less rainfall in Ethiopia, which I can calculate, I can start thinking and saying, and what is my responsibility in it? What would it mean to scale up a, sort of a cash transfer scheme uh, from covering 10% of the people to 40% of the people. I can start putting numbers in it. And that's actually part of the beauty. It enforces that you want to start doing some of that planning. And you could create the actual infrastructure so that if something happens, you can quickly get cash to all of that population and you've pre-positioned for that. Yeah. So I want to... Uh 
take us now to an extension that I think is really important, um, which is actually applying this to violence and conflict. Uh, because there has been a market for insurance that has matured in natural disasters because of a specific set of features that make natural disasters easier to insure. They're events that you largely don't control. They're really easy to kind of measure and know when they happened um, and kind of so forth. Violence is a much messier place. And we've started to see movements in this direction. So to your broader point on kind of pre-committing funds, the United Nations um, Office for Humanitarian Coordination has a huge pot called SURF that has about $500 million in it that is allocated whenever kind of an emergency hits. But there's a broader question of whether we can move more into that area. Um, And we're going to use kind of the next bit to both explore uh, insurance by asking the tougher questions as it applies to violent conflict and hopefully try to bring along some of the skeptics, but also do it with kind of eyes wide open and some humility. So from your angle, can you kind of tell us what you think the potential is for applying this to violent conflict? So, you know, let's make sure we think through always the three principles of this. It has to be something that we have a very clear trigger, something that helps with our decision-making. And we we can't do this if there is huge ambiguity about whether there is a problem or not. We need to be able to define a trigger point. So in this situation, it could be the number of refugees who flow over a border. Exactly. Um, and secondly, we'll need to have a sense that we can actually do something you know, kind of sense of having a bit of a a plan, an idea, and it comes back to your earlier question. Financing alone is not solving it, but it can induce the the fact that you do some pre-agreed financing mechanism. You know, you're only going to get a donor or or even your own organization to say, look, we're quite happy to get you this policy if you have a sense that you can actually spend it and be efficient Mm -hmm. and actually get some results. So you, you, so there is a sense of, there is, you have a sense of a mode of operation or an implementation plan. And so to an example, if, you know, a refugee crisis happens, we can commit that we're going to send food and uh, blankets. That may not be the thing you want to do, but that's just an example. Or similarly, uh, you may have arrangements with governments that they will make you your the preferred partner to work with or that they will say if something like that happens and and we could have a policy a government in some kind of a country uh, bordering conflict could have that arrangement but there's a clearly a sense that it's th- that so that we don't get just you know mm-hmm. uh money coming in because money alone especially in these settings is not going to fix it you have to have a clear sense what you do it to make it credible and then once you have these things you have something that can be insured. You have a defined loss and you have a decision point for your contract. One of the things that I learned, to my surprise, one of the things, the, f- the fun things that you can have in DFIT is that you have convening power. And we called in at some point a whole bunch of people from Lloyd's of London. You know, the old uh, insurers broking pr- platform, you know, the kind of original uh, uh, broker for um um, with, with with groups of people underwriting all kinds of, call it strange risks, you know, they became more, but, and basically they more or less said, we ensure anything. Mm-hmm. We can do anything. It comes at a price and the price will be determined very much how clear the trigger point is and how clearly can you think about the likelihood that this trigger will happen. So this gets to, let me dive in on this, because this is, I think, one of the first things that whenever I talk with people in the humanitarian sector, they get at, which is 
you may, you just can't predict conflict. Like you don't know when it's going to happen, right? And so for, for underwriting, what that actually means is you could still write a contract, right? Like the interesting thing about insurers is like they will write you a contract for pigs flying tomorrow, you know, dressed in lipstick, and you could buy that contract. It'll be extremely priced, <laughs> extremely high priced. And so the question when you're thinking about the application of these instruments to conflict is whether with a sufficient amount of accuracy and precision, we can predict them to get instruments that make sense for us to buy. So first question, like, are you confident that we can predict these types of events? Um, I'm confident that, that we, we can we can price them. It's an interesting thing. I'm confident we can price them. And indeed, I know I agree with you that the ambiguity, the cost of ambiguity from not quite knowing the state of the world is there. So that actually leads me intuitively to say is that this is probably an, an area where you want to think very carefully about whether you want to go to the market where you may end up paying to the roof or whether you, because in the end, you know, it's still typically donors or philanthropists that will have to pay for this to actually want to underwrite simply some of these risks. But, but the underwriting is still a form of transfer where they pre-commit to pay if certain things are happening. Now, the market may price it extremely highly. From a donor point of view, it may be then more efficient to actually contractually connect themselves with particular organizations or, or group of donors and a group of, of players uh, commit themselves to it, but it has to be pre-agreed and it mm-hmm. has to be credible. And that leads me also to say is that what you can't probably do is to do much more in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the gains you can have from this and the cost that may be implying here is that you probably can't do much more than the early onset period, the early period, the rapid response. But when it comes to, for example, uh, refugee flows, you know, it's also a matter of when you take out that contract. You know, you can still go to Lloyd's. You can still go to Lloyd's, say there is conflict raging. Refugee flows are minimal, but you can still, at that moment, go out for a contract and say, suppose now there is a, an additional 500,000 refugees. But, and, but then, and then you start getting ways that you can actually, you know, protect your ability to respond. And you could go to the market to that as well. Yeah. But one of the features of insurance is that you have to have a pool of, of parties with different risks. So, it, you know, in healthcare, you might have some sick people and some well people, and that's how the pool is insurable. But in this situation, if you had uh, DRC or South Sudan that have had decades of civil wars and lots of internal and, and external displacement, how are they going to be insurable? Because in a way, insurance works when it's a one in five or one in 10 event rather than a every year event. Sure. No, no. And, and, and it's a very clear thing what you say there is that you would never go for insurance for something that is a near certainty to happen. You would never go for a one in two year, uh, you know, if, if every other year there is a big crisis in, in Darfur, please don't try to go for insurance. It's, it will cost you a fortune. I mean, think of it. So what context would it, what context, give us some illustrations of where it might work and how could you mitigate it? Could you, for instance, say a certain severity level triggers a payout because these places may have long running civil wars, but they may not be acute in terms of the level of displacement? Look, there are plenty of places, you know, um, uh, plenty of places that we consider, consider fragile uh, where there is risk of conflict, but it may be not raging, but there are potentially 
uh, things could happen there. And and it's it's more that you think of of these these uh, kind of things. But yeah, I agree with you. It could also be about you know not ensuring business as usual, which is actually quite a mess. But say a doubling of 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 that crisis and so on. And you could think about it. Think of it what it what it is is the kind of circumstances where your business as usual fundraising model needs to be changed, where you suddenly need to get large amounts of funding that you don't uh, otherwise have uh, have available. Now, so it's for a protracted crisis. Please don't go for insurance. That's mm-hmm. just that that is the the normal state of affairs. Then you then there's no money to be found in the insurance industry, or if they give they, they promise it to you, it's hugely expensive. Can I just say a related thing as well that we always have to be careful with? So so it it clearly is for early stage or for acceleration severity or something like that. We could consider these things. We also must know that. Um, the more difficult it is to call a crisis, huh? the more difficult it is, the more it starts deviating from a score on the Richter scale, like with an earthquake, the more difficult it becomes in terms of really judging, is this an increase in IDPs or not, or something, or refugees, the more difficult it is, um, the more likely it also, even if you have some kind of trigger-based product that gives you money, that you'll make errors. And the important part for the humanitarian sector is to never think that this is replacing alternative ways of doing it. The only way we would want to use it is to accelerate response and make them more efficient. But then still knowing this is what we technically call basis risk, where essentially there is a certain part of the risk that is still there, that a disaster may happen, but it's not called, mm-hmm. we will still need all our normal instruments, surf and surf squared, you know, big flows of money that may have to be, be available. But, but we're doing this because we believe that we can have quicker responses, more better targeted responses, better planning for responses by going for these insurance like systems. Yeah, that's a, that's a really crucial point that it's only going to cover a part of it. And you could be in a situation where a conflict happens, but because of the way that you've constructed the instrument, it actually doesn't get called out. So you could have a war in Burundi, for example, that triggers once 25,000 refugees flow over the borders. And if you have a war in which 20,000 refugees flow over the borders, like this instrument's not called, the money doesn't come out. Yes. And so it's not covering everything. It's covering very specific uh, incidences. This then gets it, I think, one of the real challenges in this space, which is how do you know when something happens? And I, th- and I think if you're listening to this conversation, you'd kind of be surprised because you're like, well, of course, you, you know when a conflict's happening, right? Like, you know when war in Syria is going on. You know when war in Yemen is going on. You know when refugees flow into Europe. But the precision levels around this are actually much more challenging. And, and to make this you know, c- concrete, Agencies and institutions stopped counting the number of deaths in Yemen two years ago because it was so hard to access and because we couldn't do it. We just now are kind of like estimating predictions, but we don't actually have the numbers. When people are flowing over borders, like hopefully the UN and other agencies are registering people, but we know that they're not. And as specific examples in Jordan, where we know that there's 600,000 registered refugees, but actually there's an estimated 1.2 million refugees um, because half of them haven't been registered. And there's a politics to that as well. But I'm just using this to underscore the fact that when you look at these questions, that the precision levels are not quite already known. 
This then gives way to kind of another question that I think is is really challenging in thinking about the application to, to conflict in particular, which is the question of moral hazards. So in normal, uh, in kind of normal behavior, one of the issues in um, thinking about insurance is that if you get insured, you may be willing to take some more risks. And with natural disasters, one of the ways that this is mitigated a bit is that, you know, whether an earthquake hits Haiti or not, Haiti doesn't have a lot of control over. And so you're not concerned that they're going to like act poorly and, you know, you know, essentially drive up the potential probability of that happening. When you're talking about conflict, though, and large payouts, it gets a little murkier. So to get concrete, let's say, for example, that you take out an insurance instrument against conflict in Burundi. And if the conflict happens, either, you know, international institutions or even the government of Burundi, for example, or the next door neighbors of Burundi are going to get a payout. Now, all of a sudden, it may make sense for them to engage in conflict. And like, this can be kind of wild and you can say like, why is that going to happen? But like, I actually think you see examples of this all the time, particularly when governments are oftentimes the source of conflict. And particularly when you're then thinking about the severity of conflict, like Burundi may then take you from the 20 to 25,000 if there's going to be larger money at the end for those refugees pulling on that example. So how do you think about this issue when you're thinking about conflict? Well, I think... There's a couple of things that we should realize in, in, in general already is that with all these things to do with responding to disasters as well, you know, the incentives, and let me call it just the political economy of it, is already quite murky. Just think of another, another dimension of what you just explained is that um, the at the moment, if Nepal is hit by an earthquake, or Ethiopia is hit by a drought, and I go for exposed financing, I'll get the money from for free. Mm-hmm. If we encourage these governments to actually do pre-agreed financing, maybe including insurance, they'll have to pay for it a bit beforehand. So we already have in our system quite a lot of strange incentives. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we have issues there. Um, we have issues there to do with incentives all the time. We also know, for example, and there's quite a lot of evidence, is that declaring a disaster is um, really good for politics because you win vote by declaring a disaster. We know that from US elections. We know that from Indian elections, Mexican elections. Anyway, incentives are there. The moral hazard of declaring a disaster is already there because if it untriggers. So I'm not sure it necessarily is the same it's not existing with an, on a disaster site as well. But um, countries engaging in conflict um, and because they will get a payout, well, you know, you start thinking very carefully who gets the payout here. You know, there is nothing that I said here is that um, that Burundi would get a payout if it gets IDPs. Um, you know, we are dealing in some context with extremely messy governments, with extremely messy governance arrangements. And, you know, humanitarian agencies forever had to kind of see how much do we work with or work alongside or work almost against what 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 uh, what what regime's doing. I think it just uh, adds a dimension to it. But it probably gives me more generally a word of caution. Okay. When you go for some of these systems, um and for all the arguments that you kind of suggest, there is there is nothing here that I want to argue, or we should 
go as much as we can quickly in all these pre-agreed financing models. But let's actually take some of the kind of risks where we can do it off the table. You know, cross-border refugees we can probably do more easily than uh, cross-border uh, refugees in particular ways than IDPs. Mm -hmm. We can do natural disasters, obviously, much better because we have better information on some of the distributions. And we, say, as on earthquake risks or, or drought risks, we can do it. These things still absorb quite a lot of resources within the humanitarian system. They absorb a lot of energy of having to improvise when this crisis happens. Imagine what it would mean if we can take these much more of the books, make them duller, make them a little bit more pre-programmed where we have a certain way of responding to it. Then when you come to this really complicated political economy in terms of a country that may start using, you know, a hunger or a displacement as an instrument of war, so we can focus on that. And I think the important part to remember in all of this is this can feel like a wonky conversation about finance, but this is actually about saving lives at the end of the day and the people at the end of the line. So with that, thank you, Stefan, for being with us today on Displaced. Stefan, thank you so much. If you people are interested in knowing more, Dull Disasters is the name of the book. It's not dull in any way, as I hope this podcast proves. But thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on the show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Hi, it's uh, Matt Iglesias. I'm Dara Lind. Ezra Klein. We're the hosts of The Weeds from Vox.com. We're taking a deep dive into the policy decisions that shape the political landscape that you see from day to day. People always like to say you, you don't want to get into the weeds. This is a podcast for people who do like to get into the weeds, who follow politics because they care about healthcare, about economics, about zoning, about inequality, about the actual underlying issues. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to get into the weeds because that's where all the policy happens. And that's the things that change people's lives. You can find more information about us at vox.com slash the weeds. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. And be sure to subscribe to the show to never, ever, under any circumstances, miss an episode. Yeah, if you miss even one, we'll be very sad. <laughs>